Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm Glenn Roy. And I'm Lanvel. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. All the way up. What more level or the strike when no? How the semester? Semester done now? Oh well, I'm with I, I don't I don't officially call the semester done until I submit um all the assignments. So I have two more papers. Last week I had a 48-hour exam. So it opened on Wednesday and it closed on Friday. Um, so I have two more papers to go. And then, so by May 30, I should be fully over with um, semester one. And moving into summer, the touring and not touring in summer. <laughs> <laughs> you can't tour on window shop. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Check out what's on sale. Recommend for friends. <laughs> you never buy everything when you say. That's true. That's true. That is absolutely true. Oh, look around. But yeah, that 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 that's been what is a oh my last so last night I went to um one of the the community the community is known to throw a lot of festive um events so last night I went to one on was it Whisking South Road. West King's House Road. Festive, festive. Let me yeah, tell you. Me, no. Because I've been there before. And I don't know, feel, maybe, maybe I did my energy on my birthday. It never did I give like it was supposed to give. But also with a party that entire weekend. So maybe that was also. Okay. Good. I mean, it's, let me tell I think, I, and I, I always say, because my, fir- my first LGBT party or body party, what them, what them say would have been Pride. Pride was the first party I, I went to that, you know. Um, I'm learning to kind of appreciate the space more. And it was, it was, it was, it was kind of, it was very, apart from the fact that I don't know where, where we're going to go to community and them fighting. Because oh, every, every, To be fair, it had a good, good party and brawl out and brawl outside. They want to stop the music for be like, listen, that can't keep, that can't keep. But beyond that, I was kind, I was very happy to kind of see. I don't know this. I, I, I for me because I, I, I don't have a lot of experience within the space. It was kind of good beyond the fight or whatever. It was kind of good to see people just. Be, and, I, and I think this more and more kind of reinforced the idea that, and, and this is why when people kind of be like, paint Jamaica in a LGBT life in Jamaica in a bad way, I kind of be like, just balance the story. We know it's a life no rosy down here for all away, but kind of balance the story because people out here have them fun and go on. So yeah, it was very nice kind of being in that space. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't care about that dance, but I, I never did feel like oh, Means that old smart, we cannot jump every time that goes. And given the name of the location, I expected more than what I saw when I was there. But you know, ever so often, I go, I go amongst the girls, say hi. <laughs> like I said, let me tell you what the problem was the last one before. When I went, I expected a soca versus dancer. That, that was what the event was billed as a peer dancer. Right? And you know me love my dancer, right? But if I get him to say soca and dancer, may I expect me, me not expect three to gradually reach a little late, but then late is relative pain of the community don't really show to things until after one, anyways. Hello. <laughs> right, and I reach look a bit after that. And make it like look five to ten minutes, I look at chipping music, and then boom, the girl kill themselves for the rest of the night. I mean, so, I mean it tired and come back. We did go to town the night before coming to go and dance in our place in our part of St. Anne, right? <laughs> I, I dance in that heels all night like me at girl. So when we did, we just did show. And then we did have I Love Soka a couple of days after. I was like, girl, yeah. girl. Yeah, 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 that's one time. <laughs> um, well, you know, you know I, I've been in a, as a, 
you know, I'm be careful now because I have a certain friend who listens to the podcast and then takes the moment upon the podcast and flip it on my face and it's not doing that. So, what I will say is things nice, right? Things are moving along professionally and personally, right? And I'm going to play Gladys the homemaker today. I get up in our spirit, I wash my cleaning on my knock. Yeah, I draw the line around the stove. But I do everything else, right? And I give up myself for Real Housewives of Atlanta tonight. So, yeah, Oguchi over here. Um, so, no, not no, major now. Come up. Come and see. So, I don't have large hang this week, big things. Oh, right. right, right, right. Large hang returns. I have a couple of events actually happening this week. Because um, I have. On either hot day, there's a thing I have to go to, and then there's a yeah, the light on the morning there, a couple of things, and so things are going, you know. People are people are the look at things, see. Nice, nice, clean, clean. Elton was a nice little message in the group today. Go up, him have an event yesterday, and him get some. He got some wonderful feedback. A community member felt so moved to share positive feedback, and that is nice, you know. So. But feel good, right? Me now I'm good skills. I'm not gonna be hungry though. Because people, certain people take me out of my bed, with out of my yard, interrupt my cleaning session for go walk on a hill, a mountain spring. I don't know how to do it. And I two-time walk out there. Two time. <laughs> so, America, I make it back here in one piece. <laughs> but we move. What did it happen? Okay, so today's topic, actually, something very, very dear to my heart. Um, and it kind of stemmed from when I used to work with Jamaica Moves. And when I, I, I went away and I did my, um, my master's in public health, I realized that there were elements of um, Jamaica Moves that it, it wasn't necessarily, it was a good campaign, um, but it wasn't targeted enough. And I felt that when I came back, this is something that even if I wasn't in the position um, controlling, um, kind of running things, it was something that I wanted to kind of suggest to the minister. And I remember when I proposed, when I, when I got at um, EFAF and I proposed the idea, I was just like, but this, this really makes sense to do um, any research into. But Big up Charlene with a little research and with Sisse, it's something that is kind of needed. So we're talking about beyond HIV. So we know that LGBT people, we've centered them around HIV, all of the, the interventions them um, regarding health is around HIV. But we exist outside of HIV. And how can we, in a sense, broaden um, healthcare for LGBT people to include NCDs. And I'm very, very happy. Um, I saw a tweet um, the other day. Uh, Robin made a tweet about the ministry doing a workshop looking on cancer screening for um, trans women. And I'm kind of happy that the ministry also is, it, ministry is moving in that direction. So we have Robin with us, um, a fellow Shivna, um, Jamaican um, Shivnin alumni. Um, or oh, alumna, sorry, um, did her MPH at Imperial College in London. She just graduated the other day. Um, Robin, welcome back. Nice to have you here. So before we, we jump into the questions and stuff, just a little thing about your, your experience. I know you guys went in a period. I thought that my year was rough, but <laughs> how, how was the experience? <laughs> Hi, hi, Lanville and Glenroy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, the experience for my year was wild. Um, for my class, at least, it was entirely online for the entire year. So there was no point when we went on to campus. Um, some of the other achievements in my cohort actually did get to go on campus um, by like the second term. Um, but for the most part, it was online. London was in lockdown. It was completely quiet. The streets were empty. Um, very different to the London that people would have experienced like even a year or two years prior. Yeah. That rolls. I can't imagine. <laughs> no, I no, literally, I can't imagine. Uh, you know, London is just one of the situations where if I run up and down, 
And I know, and I, I just said like, I know Suel, for example, because I think Suel probably was there the same time as you. Yeah, yeah. Suel and, yeah. Right, so I know Suel had done some physical classes at some point. So, or she has not even been <laughs> carnival. Another, no. you know, me, and I lived, I lived like right beside Notting Hill. Like I lived in Nothing Hill and it was like yeah, the hardest thing. Like something for God. Oh God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> It rough, it rough. <laughs> so, Robin, um, jumping into our conversation today, I kind of want to, to set the, the tone of the conversation. Um, just generally, why have LGBT people been centered around HIV and AIDS um, and other STIs for since forever, um, basically? So that's, that's a great question. Um, and I feel like the context of Since Forever is so important there because from a, my personal experience and my perspective as a relatively young healthcare provider um, is that a lot of the discourse around LGBT healthcare and the prominence of LGBT healthcare um, centered around their sexual and reproduct- reproductive health came about because of the HIV activism. So with the onset of the pandemic in the late 70s, early 80s, um, a lot of the community activism that we saw coming out was from the communities that were hardest hit. So the the gay and and transgender communities were really the ones who started speaking out most about it. And that kind of community push that so far has been very unique to HIV care and HIV healthcare, that community push and community activism, I think, is what has helped to really center the needs Um, of the LGBT community, but unfortunately, because of how vertically delivered or health programs are, meaning they tend to focus on one narrow issue at a time, um, that kind of activism and interest in LGBT care hasn't spread into the other aspects of general healthcare as we know it. So as a follow-up, I guess, people often ask the question like, why does this even matter? You know, why should we be? Because I guess for them, you know, a lot of conversations around queerness and queer identities do surround the kind of sex that, you know, queer people have, right? And so they can see that kind of nexus between queerness and sexual and reproductive health. Um, I guess what a lot of people don't readily understand is the nexus between queer identities and other related health issues. And I I guess my question is, how do you help people to kind of appreciate the connection? Boy, that's a good question. Um, Personally, I always tend to take an intersectional approach when it comes to these things. So intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw, that kind of um, black feminist movement lens through which to view people. Um, from a healthcare perspective, you would consider it like a biopsychosocial thing, the idea that the person sitting in front of you is more than just their biological sex, is more than just their biological risk, but is also composed of these other psychological and social domains that are impacting their healthcare. So risk behaviors, as well as the, the communities and the homes and the places that they work in, all of these things contribute to risk. And so that's the approach that I try to take when I'm talking about this to a wider audience, so that it's healthcare or non-healthcare, to emphasize this idea that each individual person comes with their own overlapping and interacting um, risk conditions. And so it's impossible to, to divorce um, any one aspect of a person, for example, the fact that they're biologically male, um, when you're considering their risk factor for something for say prostate cancer or depression, for instance. I'm happy you, bring you, you brought up that, uh, that point, um, Robin, because I think all, the idea also is that NCD affects everybody in general. So I feel like when we look on the issue, it's just like, well, if you eat this kind of food, if you don't exercise, if you don't do regular checks to kind of find out where you are, then obviously you're going to be prone to it. And it was very interesting when... Um, Charlene did the lit review and we found, and I, I think one of the things that I said to Charlene is we need to look at the non-biological factors because everybody's going to look on the fact that biologically you are predisposed because of certain 
um, because of because of these things. But outside of biology, um, what can what makes LGBT people in a sense more prone to um, to, to 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 NCDs? So that's a difficult question to answer because I'm sure much like you and Charlene had found, there is just a dearth of information when it comes to um, disaggregating or looking specifically at um, sexual orientation and gender minority folks. We do not have the, the broad population level data that is usually so critical to digging into risk factors and getting those nice odds ratios and risk ratios that help us to determine um, how, how to counsel our patients appropriately about their risk. Um, you are right in saying that NCDs affect all of us really. Um, and it's regardless of our sexual orientation or gender identity, NCDs do affect all of us and especially all of us as black Caribbean people because we know we're already by virtue of our ethnicity at higher risk for certain NCDs like cervical cancer, hypertension, among others. But when it comes to persons who identify um, outside of the heteronormative, outside of the cisgender heteronormative spectrum, um, it's, it becomes more of an issue of looking at and trying to, to figure out how inequalities in access to quality health care and structural violence from the oppressive system that they exist in, how those two things combine to push these populations further and further into risk. So what I mean by that is, even though let's say a transgender woman may start out with an average level of, uh, or a transgender man would start out with like an average level of cervical cancer risk, for example. But the fact that that transgender man is not targeted for cervical cancer screening, the fact that that transgender man is um, stressed out because of the society that he lives in, so he turns smoking or drinking to help to cope, all of these things coincide to elevate not just his risk of cervical cancer, but his risk of having that cervical cancer progress to a late stage because it just wasn't picked up early because he just didn't have access to health care. I want to ask another thing and, and maybe um, Glenn maybe can also comment on this um, you spoke about data and the fact that we don't have um, enough data and I think that that's that's our main aim um, at equality in a sense to um, the Jamaica Health and Lifestyle Survey is the well the only national survey I know that um, collects data around um, the health status of the country um, and they use that to inform a lot of things um, and I know they don't, for sexual orientation and for gender identity, questions regarding that are not, um, in a, they don't ask questions around that. And I remember when I had, I had a conversation with um, Rob Allen from um, MOH, but they collect the data for HIV. And I was saying to her, if you collect sexual orientation and gender identity data for HIV, why isn't this something that you why can't this be implemented in a sense across um, for other um, illnesses um, that people kind of see? I'm not sure if the, if the fact that we don't, um, one, maybe don't have um, gender, so we don't have anything around gender recognition. So we, 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 we see sex and gender as the same thing, male, female. Um, maybe if, I don't know if we had a, a gender recognition act or something, in a sense, it would give us that leeway to be like, okay, people exist outside. So, to recognize trans um, individuals. So that data would also be captured. So I think you've hit the nail on the head totally um, with identifying or with that question in particular, like why don't, and this applies to just health and more, more generally for um, the LGBT community. Why don't we do all the great things that we learned about doing the HIV program across the entirety of healthcare in Jamaica? And it would, it would really benefit not just the LGBT population, but like the population at large, because you know HIV strategy, the core of it was all about listening to the community that you're serving and changing your program in response to that. So the addition of gender um, questions and sexual orientation questions is not something that came up initially when the first research started on HIV, but through the iteration and the, the activism and the push from people who the research was being done on, we find that now those things are included and you get better, more rich data as a result of it. So there's a number of issues, I think, though, just generally around why we don't routinely collect 
um, Sogi data. And I think first and foremost is probably the stigma and discrimination um, that we still have to deal with in our society. That's driven by the criminalization of buggery and other laws that criminalize um, so many aspects of LGBT life. Um, I also want to think about data security. So in our population, um, a large part, and I know they're moving to change this, but a large part of our healthcare data is still paper-based. And the security around that is basically whoever has access to the medical records office can go in and pull a record off the shelf and open it. And so when you think about patient privacy and patient confidentiality, these are some of the things that you get into, like the ethics around collecting information that can be potentially harmful to the person if it's if it's read or if it's found, you know, open versus the the how, how are you going to keep that private? So I think those are some of the challenges around why we're not collecting that data. Another issue, and this is probably more systemic, um, is that in Jamaica, we tend to lag behind when it comes to data collection. So you mentioned that the Jamaica Health and Lifestyle Survey is the only national survey that you know of that looks at the health status generally. Um, also have the HIV knowledge behavior survey, but that's quite specific to HIV, like you said. But for instance, we don't have any national cancer registries. And that's like a key core public health epidemiological tool that you can look at to ascertain like risk and, and um, prevalence and incidence and use that to inform your public health strategies. But we don't have that. So we do tend to lag behind and, and have a lack of information more generally. Um, and even the simple discussion of because there's been I've been hearing discussions around even just altering our medical records intake forms to include a spot for um, gender identity if it's different from the sex you were assigned at birth. And conversations like that, unfortunately, in our healthcare system, do it just takes such a long time for that change to become mainstream. And unlike a private practitioner's office where you can see that doctor has control over what goes on his forms in his office, you're looking at a network of over, you know, hundreds of health centers um, dozens of, of other higher healthcare facilities and to change, to make those kinds of changes to the information that's collected has to be done in such a way that it, I want to, I use the term respect, but I use it loosely, but respect the process of change in a healthcare system, which is honestly quite slow. So I want to kind of jump in and, and I guess in a way problematize some of what we've discussed. Uh, so first, uh, to kind of the point of how laws may or may impact the way in which we approach health-related strategies, approaches, and stuff like that. So to me, it's yes or no. And I say that because we still don't have, we still criminalize anal sex, you know? We still, for example, criminalize abortion. We still don't have a space in which we recognize a uh, person's gender identity. And yet, yet and still, there are, there are ways in which our health sector have responded in, in, in parts, not in a structured way and not in a fully kind of systemic way, but have responded to certain things, so for example, there's a whole, uh, Victoria Jubilee, there's a whole space that deals with what happens when someone tries to have an unsafe abortion and responding to that, and they have data around that, and they, they pay attention to it. Um, even though the laws prevent, would kind of tell you that if somebody comes with a botched abortion, they should be in jail, but that, does, that, that doesn't translate to somebody showing up with a botched abortion, um, so to speak, doesn't translate to increased uh, criminalization of women who seek to, to attempt to terminate their pregnancies. Um, and in the same way that notwithstanding uh, the criminalization of anal sex, our, our, our national strategic plans around HIV um, in, in, in some degree do recognize the need for men who have sex with men to be specifically targeted in both government-based and civil society-led interventions. And now they're focusing on, trans, on the trans community and it's a bit more, and, that, and, and the trans community piece is relatively new because um, trans persons have become more vocal and talk about the need to separate out the data they were collecting on men who have sex with men from persons who are trans. And now we've seen that kind of integration of that kind of information and data collection within the HIV response specifically. And so what that tells me is that 
even though the law will be a barrier in so much for you to get like big institutional change, it doesn't prevent, it doesn't put you in a position where nothing can happen. And so for me, when we talk about why aren't we adopting similar approaches when we think and talk about uh, non-communicable diseases and other health related challenges, mental health and so on, I think a part of it is, and I think Robin really set it out well at the outset, uh, LGBT people mobilized around HIV. They mobilized around as a community needing to respond to the reality that this virus was disproportionately affecting our community. And they pushed and pushed and pushed and made a difference. I, I, and, and the civil society in Jamaica has kind of mobilized around it. I think what has not happened is they have not adequately lent themselves to the other related issues. So they've not kind of addressed their minds to the NCD conversations. So I think there's a way in which the movements themselves haven't adequately accounted for LGBT people holistically. And now there are efforts to kind of do that, which is why you're seeing work on mental health, why you're seeing work on NCDs, because now there's an effort to kind of take a step back and bring the kind of HIV approach to other health-related issues. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for raising all of those points. And as you say, like problematizing um, my response. And the fact of the matter is that yes, where the individual or personal will is there to address these issues, to find this research, to make these changes, these things will happen. But when you're talking about um, population level change or institutional level change, you are going to need political will because the vast majority of Jamaicans, and in critically this includes healthcare workers, do still retain stigma and discrimination and have skewed perceptions of the LGBTQ community. And this is where having the political and institutional backing to say, um, actually, you know, we are going to protect and respect the rights of all people and ensure access to quality healthcare for all people. This is where you have the institutional backing helping to override the personal individual beliefs. And that's what's so critical because a key thing I think about, and I will always have this, um, this slight bias, which is that, Things that happen in Kingston don't necessarily happen elsewhere in the island. Um, and so the, the addition to the Victoria Jubilee um, of that key ward for care of persons um, with, with complications of abortion happened out of necessity, one, but I can guarantee you because two, probably somebody there recognized the need to dive into this issue and recognize that despite the laws that criminalize this, it was still something that, that needed to to be addressed and needed to be um, focused on. Um, that, and this is where when you talk about um, access to quality healthcare, you really have the same time as you're working at the grassroots levels. Outside of Kingston, you won't find that same level of access to quality, high quality healthcare to, to LGBT friendly providers. Like, concentration of those is just a few and far between the further away you get from the capital city. Which is very fair. Um, Landa, you want to share some of, okay, you've been mentioning the study, but you want to share some of what you, what you, you know, Charlene uncovered in the literature review, and I think she did a focus group as well, um, that kind mm -hmm. of highlighted some of what the literature was pointing to. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think from, from a, just a little summary of what the, the lit would have said, um, of course, it is an issue. I think majority of the studies that um, came from the lit review were um, from the USA. Um, it, it spoke about obesity um, being high among um, trans women. It spoke about um, breast and cervical cancer, well, especially breast cancer among um, queer women. And, if, and this is because of the fact that um, they don't, in a sense, for some queer women, they don't have children, so they don't go through the process of lactating. Um, and then queer women 
when Ines are treated like heterosexual women. Um, so the doctors don't kind of question um, that. So they possibly miss another queer women don't, don't go for um, cervical and um, breast cancer um, screening. Um, there's the issue of um, alcohol use, um, tobacco, cigarettes. Um, we also looked at Jamaica moves and how inclusive or how um, accessible um, members of the LGBT community saw Jamaica. For some, quite a few of them didn't say that the activities they necessarily. I, I think safety is always um, an issue for the LGBT community. Um, the spaces that they were happening in, um, they didn't want to be in those big, um, broad spaces, so they tend to kind of. Um, stay away from those spaces. A lot of participants spoke about how they did because minority stress um, was something that came up or something that they have been kind of looking at, um, linking it to the NCDs and the LGBT community. A lot of participants spoke about how they kind of cope with stress. Um, drinking, smoking um, were two of the kind of big ones um, that they highlighted. And I think there was an 876, 876 um, study that was done. I, th I think that also, there's a correlation between the study that was done, um, the 876 study that was done, and what we kind of found in the qualitative study that, um, that we did. Simplified um, oh, sure version for the non-public health specialists. Them, the girls them have got through all it, so them have bad habits. But they fall back back to the whole it, but them have got through. All right. Also, and everywhere the girls them want to rush out to because they don't know if anything might pop off when them go there. So them when somebody look at events them for your, for your exercise and throw up your hand and cartwheel and all of them something there. You know, as a bunch of people, we have to sort the place first before we go down to all of them excitement thing. So the girls weren't rushing to those places. So that was also it. So <laughs> it's a coping mechanism. It's not, not being sure certain spaces are safe. I'm going to be very honest with you. Prior to um, myself, prior to me starting the gym, I guess a couple of years ago now, like I think I've been doing gym for two years now. I was not very, I was very wary of going to gym spaces because I, I oftentimes felt like they were hyper-masculine and that I don't know how somebody like me would be received. And so I think it was because Matt J and Sue were there and, and them kind of, it's, oh no man, it's cool. That made me feel like, okay, this is a gym I can go to and not necessarily worry about you know, feeling safe in the space, feeling if and, and, and feeling unwelcome in the space. And so I, I completely appreciate it for a lot of queer people. You kind of know where you are go before you you chip to the dip to the dip to the dip into a space and then at a clubs reach you. So I fully appreciate that. And the girls be smoking. Yep. The girls be smoking. Every look at event you got them that old well, not even outside. Whether it is the weed. Whether it is a cigarette, then I mean, I, I mean, I try, you know, I'm not going to judge a girl, right? Car, me not admit to nothing on no podcast, but <laughs> you know, me not admit to nothing on no podcast, but must have fair, my understands. I mean, I won't. I I never smoked a cigarette. I I personally just the the appeal is not there for me. I don't feel like. I know it's very addicting. I'm going to take with my lungs. It's not going to be me. <laughs> not going to be me. But I, I can appreciate how some, you know, I can appreciate weed and culturally we feel differently about weed. And so I get it. It's when it becomes the, the, the thing that you rely on to kind of deal with the, the stresses that you talk about. And so it's something that I pay attention to. And I think absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it was a and it, and it, it was so like that was something that consistently like it came it re repeatedly the participants who part who did the, the 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 focus group that's repeatedly what they said like every every stressor was smoking or drinking but I, and another and another thing that came out was um like prostate cancer um for trans women and um, 
cervical and breast cancer um, for trans men. Um, and I was very happy when I saw um, the tweet about the ministries kind of doing sensitization around that, um, because we still have to have to be um, in, I don't know if mindful is a word, um, in a sense aware that um, trans men and um, trans women biologically um, would kind of still have the, the well, for somebody who will have the argument that you, you're, you're, you're prone to prostate cancer at a certain age, and you're going to be prone um, to, to breast cancer and cervical cancer at a certain age. Um, and I was kind of happy to see that the, the ministry, in a sense, is kind of taking some steps to, um, in a sense, address um, that. My upper freedom, right? My upper translate to some other things, right? Um, but otherwise, I mean, and that's why I appreciate this focus so much for me. I think the most important thing about ex expanding our focus beyond HIV is we finally also get to talk about other members of the community. HIV is a very gay man-centric, cis-queer man man-centric conversation. And now we're kind of creating space for trans people, but it's, it's still very gay heavy. And I think broadening our focus allows us to really engage um, other groups within the community in a much more meaningful way about how does the fact that you deal with homophobia affect your body, your mind, and affect for your navigate life and the impacts of all of that. Um, no, I wanted to jump in um, when you guys were talking about the, the thrust by the ministry or the interest in the ministry um, from the ministry in, in looking at screening in those special populations. So um, for transgender men, screening for cervical cancer, transgender women, screening for prostate cancer, as well as the recognition that being from a minority population in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity is a additional risk factor for developing depression and other mental health conditions. Um, and the reason I tweeted about it is partly because it was so exciting and unexpected for me um, to come across these in like a national policy document. It was really exciting to be able to see that attention being paid um, to the community where previously they were kind of invisibilized. It's not that, you know, we didn't know they were there. It was just they were, um, or we were just swept aside by, by mainstream policy documents. So this, this calling out, this specificity of saying, you know, hey, these are special populations and you need to do additional steps to make sure they're included, um, I feel is a huge step in the right direction by the ministry. Um, and so big up to the, the NCD, the Non-Communicable Diseases and Injury Prevention Unit at the Ministry of Health and Wellness for, for making this happen and bringing this document to fruition. Um, one thing I will, I guess, highlight or point out or one thing that was important to me um, was at the same time as we're pushing policy and institutional changes and advocating for that, we also have to, we have to kind of bring everybody with us in a sense. So there is just like back in the day when we were trying to normalize HIV care and, and encourage um, healthcare workers to make healthcare spaces accessible and acceptable to persons um, who had differing or, or different gender expressions. Um, and we had to take the time and go in and teach basically healthcare workers how to treat queer persons. Um, I think we have to do a similar thing now as we're rolling out these institutional and policy changes. We do have to take the time and ensure that we talk to healthcare professionals and teach them how to treat these people because otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where oh, ministry said we must do this, but I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to do it, or I'm not going to do it properly, or I don't know how to do it, so I'm not going to do it, so I'm not going to do it properly. And I think the conversations around screening really highlighted that to me. So not everybody is as excited as, as me or some of the other young doctors to say, yes, they're here, we're going to go, we're going to screen them, we're going to get LGBT people, we're going to you know, erase those health disparities. Some people um, really have a lot of hesitancy and... And in many cases, just a lack of knowledge about dealing with the community. And it's equally important to address those concerns. So I'm glad you brought up like teaching. Um, for me, I always, I, I always wonder, 
you know, what opportunities exist to provide this information to healthcare practitioners. Practitioners, um, you think is very broadly here, before they kind of end up on the scene in the healthcare facilities and the healthcare spaces. Um, that's, because I, because I think it, it's, I wonder if it would be easier, let me not say, say that conclusively, I wonder if it would be easier to kind of, you know, bend the tree while it's young, right? Make them understand as part of them, them preparations in becoming um, medical professionals or just um, health professionals that this is something that you have to think about. This is something that you have to talk about. This is something you have to be prepared to ask. And this is where you have to ask it. Um, are we preparing them as early as possible? Or are we waiting for when the situations happen within healthcare facilities? And then, then you know, us at the flags make up the knives and say, you know, this is the experience of the community when they try to access different services, yada, yada, yada. Uh, to then train who needs to be trained. So I appreciate that, uh, of course, people been trained already. You have, you have doctors who've done them training already and they will need to be engaged. But I still think about what, what opportunities exist for our, our students to get this information from as early as possible so that you're coming into the field um, with the right mindset about engaging marginalized communities in a, in a wider way. Because it's very important that we, of course, recognize we have to talk about LGBT people, but I think about, you know, because we've been talking about stresses and, I, and it would be interesting to hear if any of this came up in Jamaica Moves Landville, um, how other stresses might have, how other stresses because of other vulnerabilities might impact it, might have impacted people's willingness to engage with um, some of what Jamaican Moves was promoting. Um, I, what, before, before Robin, because maybe Robin can expound on that, man, because I know minority stress is like a new, I don't know how new it is, but I know it's something that is being kind of examined more. But I think for, for Jamaican Moves, and I always use the, I can't remember where exactly we went. I always, um, I remember, and I, and I loved going into communities because it kind of allowed you to find out why people don't engage because you can sit in a, in a Kingston office and plan all these things and be like, okay, this definitely will work. But when you talk to people, you get an understanding of, okay, all right, cool. Maybe this isn't targeted enough. And I remember we went to this community. Can't remember the lady, can't remember exactly where. But the lady, you know, Jamaica, um, they, they do day's work. And she said... She was very happy that the, we had a pop-up um, health screening there. And she said she was very happy um, for it because her missing a day, because of how the, the, we know how the, the healthcare system stay. If you, even if you go from 7 a.m., you possibly might not get, get through until 4 um, p.m. And she was just like, for her to miss an entire day's work pay, it don't really make sense for her because she has children, she has support um those um children and those are that's that, that was very important for me in the sense that how do we for some services and i was very happy when they kind of started going out to 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 give the covid vaccines to people where they were instead of inviting people um to come to the centers because sometimes you have to bring the service um to the people and kind of look at look how supportive the service is um, and, and kind of look at different ways within the community because um, we, we, we're doing a lot of things on the national level and not necessarily going within communities to see for people. A lot of people spoke about um, them coming home six o'clock. Um, for, for some of them, it, some of them on the street light, they don't have um, ball field or whatever um, to use. Um, for some of them, just crime is high um, in their community. So when them come in, they must shut the door and them not come back out. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of things that we in Kingston, well, some places in Kingston who plan these programs don't um, experience. So when you go to those communities, you kind of get a better understanding of, oh, all right, cool. Maybe for this particular community, we need to kind of tailor our messaging. We need to kind of tailor how we kind of push 
eating healthy, physical activity, screening to these kind of people? I mean, there's a whole other conversation about how the kind of processes that people who sit in Kingston offices are required to go through just to get things done, just don't work for community organizing. I think about procurement, I think about them kind of stuff, but they like the things I have to do to make things work in a community don't like, it's going to be different from me doing an intervention in Kingston where I can probably get my three quotes and all of them somewhere, right? And I think that's also another level of conversation where there's a disconnect because I think for some people in Kingston offices, and I always complain about this, for, for lots of people in Kingston offices, I, th- I, I think it's sometimes it's not that they don't care. Because I think about how like Elton tries to like do community building activities now, it's not that he doesn't care and doesn't understand the context, it's just, you might have to figure out, so, oh, maybe I justify spending the money that way here with me. No, I don't work for the community. But the audit process and the procurement process still the play a worry is if it so. So I think that's a, that, there's that disconnect that needs to be clarified. But that's a lot of conversation. I'm joking, I'm in. But um, go ahead, Robin, to kind of answer the question about what opportunities exist for engaging like practitioners before they become practitioners or, or you think might exist. Thank you so much for repeating the question because I got so excited at what Lanville was talking about. I it flew clear out of my head. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's also one of my one of my passion projects as well. Um, but as you as it relates to opportunities for pre-service training, um, so I know, I think I remember hearing one time, and correct me if I'm wrong, JFLAG was doing a lot of, and probably is still doing a lot of advocacy with the medical school at, at UE to, to try and get more LGBT health content into the curriculum. Um, but university and school curriculum changes are such a lengthy and tedious process. And it's, it's just like you said about the difference between procurement at a Kingston office versus doing the work in the community. It's a similar thing when it comes to bureaucracy. Um, so for pre-service training, that is really one arm of it. So advocacy to try and get that stuff included in the official curriculum, but also um, probably just thinking off the top of my head, targeting in-school groups, so student associations or student clubs, um, liaising with student volunteers. Um, I know Samantha Johnson, for example, the layman's doctor, while she was in medical school, she would volunteer with We Change, and she kind of brought a lot of that advocacy and grassroots training back into her med school um, her med school class and also used it, you know, to, to advocate more and amplify more in healthcare spaces after she graduated. Um, so shout out to Samantha. <laughs> but beyond pre-service training, which I think is critical and, and useful to, to as Benora said, Bend the Tree while it young, um, it's impossible to neglect the the large, the large numbers of, of healthcare providers who are already in service. And so in-service training has to come into the question as well. Um, Unfortunately, we can't wait for everybody who's currently working to retire um, before we start to see changes. I've thought about it. It is not a viable plan. Um, But in-service training, I find that the gap that really comes up because it's really good to have these trainings and you train like, you know, hundreds of people across the island. But to have a training and then at the end of the training, that's it. There's no mentorship. There's no follow up. um, There's nothing to, to there's no feedback to see if people are using the skills um, that they've been trained to employ, or there's no mentorship to say, oh, um, after the training has completed, go out and use these skills. But if you run into trouble, um, you know, this is a person you can contact to, to maybe guide you through a process that you may not be experienced enough yet to, to understand. So that's part of it, the feedback and the follow-up and the mentorship with in-service training. Another aspect of it though, is the recurrence of in-service training. So you know that in Jamaica, we tend to have a very high turnover of healthcare practitioners. People tend to migrate for better options. And so the person you train now may not be working in the healthcare system again in another two, three years, or even another few months. So the importance of having like regular recurrent trainings as well to ensure that you catch whatever new crop of practitioners are entering the system. But then you get into questions of financing and economics and, you know, navigating the political tensions around, um, and, and the personalities are on who's going to invite you into their space to have this training done. 
I think my my final question would be just following up on um do because and and we've done um CEUs in um late last year we did CEUs with um mental health practitioners those um I found um were kind of good one you're gonna have to break down CEUs for me sorry also, I don't know CEUs um continuing education units oh okay. um so because psychologists they need to they need to do a total of fifteen um credits each year to, to maintain um, their license. Um, so we did um, some with them um, coming out of the work that we were, were doing around um, mental health for LGBT persons. That was good in a sense that the, the practitioners, in a sense, kind of laid their bias on the table. People who knew nothing, people who had misconceptions or whatever, from day one, they came in and they said, listen, this is what I know, this is what I think, this is what, so they, the biases were already there and it was kind of good that the discussion, the, the discussions that we kind of have after day two, I was very pleased because a lot of people were kind of more, they even said, oh, I, I went home and I, I, I did, I, I did more reading on this and whatever. So I found that people were kind of infused about what they were, what they got from that. Um, so I'm wondering for the same thing for that, because I know doctors have to do um, continuing medical CMEs. education, CMEs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do they work um, or is it just, okay, need, I need credits um, to kind of, I know some people take them seriously, but need credits, um, let me find out a CME. So that's a, that's a good point um, and very valid. In my experience, um, a lot of the time CME activities, and especially since we've transitioned to virtual, um, a lot of the time, it's just like you said, we need credit. So we're just going to sign up for this thing, collect our credits and go home. Um, but there is definitely a space for more interactive workshop type CME events. Um, the uptake, because there's no way to, to, to guarantee when you're producing a CME event, there's no way to say, um, oh, you must come to this. It's really kind of an open invitation thing. And so a lot of the time you may end up like almost kind of preaching to the choir is, is one downside to that. So the people who are interested are the people who are already interested in the topic and you may not reach any fresh, um, fresh minds. But CMEs are one valid way of, of approaching um, the medical community. Um, I want to say it is difficult or it can be difficult to elicit and uncover those biases like you did in a mental health space. I found um, people are a little bit more, they feel a little bit more psychologically safe to talk about those things as opposed to like a purely um, bioclinical type of, of setting that you often get with doctors and nurses. And so it may take a little bit more probing to uncover those biases to be able to talk about them in a meaningful way. But CMEs definitely are one way to have in-service training um, to teach healthcare providers these things. Um, and actually, and because Sam would kill me if I don't mention this, but one of the, the things that we've been talking about, uh, me and a few other doctors, is this small budding NGO um, margin to center where we're really concerned with bringing the issues of marginalized populations into the healthcare worker space more centrally and really like advocating or creating a, an area where we can talk about these things and ensure that healthcare providers know these things functioning as a kind of um, knowledge bank or knowledge bridge really to connect the information that already exists. The wonderful work that teams like JFLAG and others have been doing to healthcare providers in our own little networks, basically, to try and, and, and be a more solid kind of connection between, oh, JFLAG, Kingston, you know, I don't know anything about that, but if it's somebody that you actually know and interact with on a daily basis that's talking to you about these issues, you're much more likely to be engaged and interested and, and willing to give it a try, basically. Yeah. So I just want to um, add that we've actually done like those, so because it spoke specifically about like general practitioner uh, yeah. trainings. So we've done those actually, but we did them differently from how the CEUs were done with the mental, with the, uh, the mental health practitioners. Um, that one was a residential training that was done over, it was a five week training. So we did, how we did it was we did three weeks, you know, there was a three, no, five, not five weeks, five days, sorry. But there was a three day training they came in, uh, day one, of course, is always the, the hardest day. They come in, we, we, the first thing we talk about is values, clarifications, myth-busting, have them put their biases on the table in a very fun, interactive way. And then by the end of day three, 
most of them are usually in a better space, but that training was designed in such a way that um, after you did the three days, you'd have to go off uh, and actually try to conduct a, a version of the, a simplified version of the training in, your, in the healthcare space that you were in. And then for the second part of the training, which was a the two-day aspect, is that you report in um, your efforts to conduct the training, what happened, and the feedback was given. So um, in other words, I, I hear you on all you've said about mentorship and, and the importance of like follow-ups and stuff like that. So we, we, you know, we've tried different approaches. You know, we look at NGO. Um, so what we're doing now is kind of more focusing on from the experience of LGBT persons accessing the services, what has happened since all of those kind of uh, investments would have been done in training persons and things like that. But I definitely agree that it has to be recurring. It has to be ongoing. Um, and it may be something to think about of reviving. Although I do know other civil society organizations are doing these kinds of trainings as far as I'm aware, or should be doing these kinds of trainings. I think what I will say is that what those trainings focused on that this one did not, that, that probably we need to start focusing on is that those trainings were framed around sexual and reproductive health largely, not, not necessarily intentionally, uh, but if I'll be honest, is where the money that come from. So it was focused on, you know, the fact that LGBT people do do experience a high burden for HIV and certain STIs. And so there was a need that was the, the aim for us to have a conversation. I think as we kind of get our footing around the other health issues and have an understanding of what the lay of the land is, we can start to figure, about, figure out how do we kind of repackage the training to talk about how do you provide services holistically to LGBT people um, in full view of how their queer identities and experience might negatively pre predispose them to certain challenges. And yeah, you're giving a cool idea, right? Just so counts. Glenroy, I want to just piggyback off something you just said because it occurs to me I should have mentioned it from like the get-go of our conversation, but you mentioned funding. And yeah. I think that's such a big thing that we can't overlook. So when you guys had asked me initially why this push around HIV and sexual and reproductive health for LGBT um, communities, is because that's where the money is. So that's where the money is coming from. It's coming from organizations for the purpose of diving into HIV and sexual and reproductive health. And when it comes to NCDs, like the money is, the, is not as readily there, or maybe it is readily there, but in my limited experience, um, I, I'm, I'm not really off with these sources of funding for NCDs and the, the quote unquote less sexy um, aspects of healthcare. Um, but the funding is a really, really big issue behind it. And international donors, um, whether they do it consciously or not, they are responsible for deciding and driving where our, our research activities and therefore our knowledge base goes. Yeah, just wanted to add that. Ciao, ciao. <laughs> <laughs> Any final words before we go? Uh, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm very happy that we're having um, this conversation. I'm very happy that, you know, for, the, for the, the number of things that have been and will be said about JFLAG equality, I'm, I'm happy that whether those things are true or not, you can't you can see ways in which we kind of push not only the gay agenda, <laughs> but we push other agendas. Um, and even if we aren't the ones necessarily champion it, championing it, we at we at least um, plant a seed to be like, okay, I think this is something that needs to be looked into. 
um, and something in a sense um, kind of happened. And it's also evidence-based. That's also, nobody can come and say, okay, we're not talking about this issue, but there's no evidence to support it. I'm happy that before we go out there to do any work, whether it's a, a two-month or three-month or however long the survey or, or the, the study is, there's something, there's a baseline to say, okay, this is happening. We, we kind of need to kind of look into it. So I'm, I'm kind of happy um, for that. And thank you very, very, very much, um, Robin. I, I was very happy when I saw... Um, that tweet about um, the, the, the MOH and um, cancer screening for um, trans women. And I'm also happy that you're back. I'm happy that we have somebody who is interested in this kind of work, somebody who is young, um, somebody who in a sense would have had an experience outside of Jamaica to kind of see how um, other um, healthcare in other um, countries kind of operate. And I'm happy that you you came back and in a sense, you want to champion a cause like this. Yes, we need more voices. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you guys. I just also want to like, I have to big up the, the work of the pioneers in health research. Apologies for the noise. Um, the pioneers in health research, uh, we are able to draw all this evidence from Carmen Logi, Charlene Jarrett, as we mentioned before, and Nastasia Rambaran is also doing a lot of work around healthcare worker attitudes um, towards LGBT communities, and Carla Moore, of course. Um, yes, yes, Carla. <laughs> I just want to be so grateful to them um, for helping me prepare for this podcast, and thank you guys so much for having me. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, people, people, I have decided to cut the, the COVID spiel from the outro because by now, only supposed to know what to do. So, if you want feedback from us, uh, you want to, sorry, you want to give us feedback on the podcast, sorry, it's at PhD Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. You can email us at PhDPodcast at gmail.com. Like, share, subscribe rate us leave a you know you know leave us a comment on the different platforms that you're listening to us on we thank you for showing up and showing out for us um i always enjoy the, the healthy conversations you know we get deep into the issues and so be upon yourself have a lovely rest of day whenever it is you're listening to the podcast and as i always say my dears stay sophisticated bye bye